God above, we indeed cry out for more prosperity, that is, the prosperity of our soul and salvation, God, and the fruit of the Spirit, and by the power of your grace upon us, we pray especially, Lord, for this morning as we gather together as your people, God Almighty, in praise of you. Help us, we pray, in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son. be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 61 inside the bulletin. Insert is Psalm 61. I will read the boldface. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So here in this psalm in which David cries to the Lord our God, he is obviously crying out to him with faith and much encouragement, in fact, here, not as much as in other psalms where he's on the other side, unhappy and full of woe. And he expresses his faith in expressing the truth of his word, of the word of God, that God hears his vows, that God will prosper the people, especially the king, and as we know, Christ Jesus, our King of kings, and we have prosperity in him and him alone. Let us pray. 
We who are your people, God Almighty, called by your word, called from out of this world, Lord, called individually and collectively, called through baptism, God, and through our profession of faith. We ask, Lord, that we would persevere and follow you all the days of our life as you cry out for mercy and forgiveness of our sins, whatever they may be, Lord, thought, word, and deed, sins of omission and not doing what we are called to do and our responsibilities in life and commission of doing what we should not do, Lord, again, in our responsibilities of life. And perhaps that includes not learning when we should learn more of your word, uh, daydreaming and being distracted, God, during times of prayer or worship, or again, even our own duties throughout the week, God, where we should focus upon them and do our best for your sake, God. All these sins and other sins, Lord, that we have, some more than others, some different areas than others, God, may we confess them to you. May we plead the blood of Christ. May we ask for forgiveness, God, and never tire of coming to the fount of Christ Jesus our Lord and being washed in his blood. We thank you for the goodness that you've given us through Christ Jesus our Lord and in and, and your providence, God, for giving us churches, faithful churches with teachers and preachers who will preach the full counsel of God and not hold back the truth to those who need it. For just Christians, Lord, even if they're not church officers who that know your word and are able to give an answer of the hope within them and have talked to us and helped us learn, Lord, of you and to grow and to perhaps even be Christians, God, through the witness and testimonies of this, those in the pews. And to these things, Lord, and many others, of course, for our body, for you have given us a plenitude of food and drink, of shelter and of clothing, God, and we are thankful for these things. Help us, we pray, as singles, as couples, as families, and as uh, families with children who've grown up and left the house, that we would help one another and pray for one another, that we would continue to do our responsibility and duty before you as singles, God, to live a chaste life and fulfillment of the seventh commandment as we can in the power of your spirit, Lord, and that uh, we, God, uh, would pray for the singles to be protected and to be watched over by your spirit and one another, God, to encourage them and to pray, God, that they would find godly spouses we pray for the couples among us, Lord, that you would be with them and protect them, and that uh, they, God, we pray, uh, would persevere and continue to do their duties before you as husband and wife, and God, a good example uh, to the those around them in the church and even in the neighborhood. And may they not be discouraged, God, in this day and age, but encouraged to know that you were with them. You were with all of us, God. We have children and not children, or children who have grown up and left the house. It matters not. And so, Lord, we pray for the fathers and the husbands, to do their duties uh, to their wives and to their children and to their families, even, Lord, to their parents and to their grandchildren, God, and to uh, their relations in the family that they are called, and especially with respect to their immediate family, Lord, that they would lead and protect and admonish and give them wisdom and strength, God, to do the right thing, we pray. We pray for the wives and the mothers and to also instruct and to lead their children and to admonish them. And again, to stand firm, to do the right thing, God, no matter what the world may think. And uh, we ask that your blessing be upon them and upon the children, Lord, the day, again, in the day and age in which uh, the neighboring kids, it's on TV, even commercials, Lord, encourage rebelliousness in children uh, to do their own thing and to push back against the parents because they don't get what they claim they're supposed to have. Our God, protect our children, protect the youngest of the oldest, Lord, uh, that they would love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love the church of Jesus Christ, and pray and work to that end, as they are able in their little bodies, and as they get older, Lord, to get comfortable, to use their strength and energy for the good of the church, and for those around them, we pray.
We ask God that you would help them as they get older to find, especially the men, uh, family supporting jobs, or at least a career that can go in that direction quickly, Lord. And we pray, God, and ask that you would be with us as a church, that we, Lord, as your people, uh, would love one another as we are called the family of God, to support and to pray for one another, to be aware of the situations, uh, again, to the extent that we are able. And we ask, God, that not only for our church, for our presbytery, and for the committees therein, Lord, and for the men who are dealing with matters between churches, that you would be with them, give them wisdom, give them strength, God, give them understanding of the situation, and, Lord, that they would be united in the proper response to whatever issue that they are dealing with at the regional church level, God, through Colorado and Utah and Dakotas. And we pray, God, that you would help our churches there as well. In Wyoming and elsewhere, Lord, that the pastors would stand firm and preach your word and love the sheep and protect them and warn them and encourage them. We pray, God, for their sessions as well to be with the pastors and they would be united together in what they need to do for their particular churches and that the churches would unite together in support of the pastor in the session and that they would be one family in, in love and understanding God and to know what needs to be done. And we pray for our denomination as well, Lord for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that you would be with her in spite of her weaknesses and her sins, and that she would continue to grow as she is able through home missions, that is, to start churches here in America, our home country, our home nation, Lord, in which we have much understanding and much of a history, Lord, in which we do certain things a certain way, and thus our unique denomination in many ways from others who have their own histories and traditions in accordance to your word and the wisdom you've given them in providence. And so, God Almighty, we ask that we would have the strength, wherewithal, the means, to establish more faithful churches in accordance to your word, not just in the city, but also in the countryside and elsewhere, God, where we can find uh, believers, where we can find those who wish to become believers and learn more of your word through Bible study, God, that you be with those missionaries, be with those evangelists, that they would have the wisdom understand the location they are in and the peoples that they're in and to be able to communicate with them as Paul communicated with different peoples both from the Jews uh, to the Gentiles at Mars Hill God in a way that's understanding to them even if they reject the truth Lord they made an effort we pray for their efforts to be successful by the power of your spirit God Almighty may they not be discouraged but understand what they need to do and know what to do and when to do it we ask God that you would be with us as those who have to live in an economy have to live with Work and money and jobs, that these things would become better, Lord, and that we would not lose good jobs to help support families, God Almighty, that we would have affordable housing and affordable living in general here in the Denver metro area that would not divide families uh, from their children, Lord, who have grown up and gotten married, God, and found out they can't do what we did when we were their age, which is get a good enough job to support themselves and a and a rental, but the rental is so expensive, and all these problems that we have, God, we pray that these things would be resolved somehow, some way, that you would give us understanding and sympathy and to know what is hard for them and what is perhaps an exaggeration, God, but certainly something is amiss. And so we pray, God, for the economy, certainly for the sake of our neighbors, because we are uh, those who are called to love our neighbors, what used to be called patriotism. And so, Lord, we pray that they would not have a bad economy for their sake, but especially and above all, as Galatians 6.10 reminds us, to do good to all men, but especially the household of faith, to pray, God, that the economy be good for us and for our members and for our children, our children's children in the covenant. We ask these things, Lord, in accordance to your name, we pray that we would continue to work as unto you, even if we don't have the best job and the job is hard, especially if we can't find another job. 
Help us, we pray, to these ends, Lord, to save up what we can, to be stewards of the time and the monies and the resources, so that we can not only take care of ourselves and our children, but one another as best we can. We ask God for your mercies upon us, through Christ Jesus. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We thank you, God Almighty, for the many blessings we've had over the years in our church here, God, and that we were able to save up funds to help one another, especially those in need through the diaconate. We ask that these things will continue through the means that you've given us in these tithes and offerings today, God Almighty, for your glorious name's sake. Amen. While we are standing, let's go ahead and sing hymn 567, 567. I'm sorry, 443. Looking at the doxology, we already sang that. 443.
Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of the Apostles' Creed, which is a very brief summary of Christian doctrine. Written sometime in the 200s, maybe even earlier. It reminds us of our connection, of course, to biblical truth, but to all uh, churches that name the name of Christ Jesus and follow his word. Let us say it together in the green sheet here, in the bullet, uh, the hymnal. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. 21 through 28. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did we come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had revulsed in him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For what authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Let us pray. Spirit of truth and life, we thank you for the Gospel of Mark. When we have, in short order, the important highlights of the life of Christ, his ministry in particular, Lord. And Mark is emphasizing God, who he is for his audience and for us to be encouraged therein, that our Lord and Savior here in particular was a great teacher, even recognized by those who would, at the end of the day, as we know, ultimately reject him. Help us, we pray, God, to continue not to reject Jesus, but to embrace him, and that more would recognize him as their great teacher and the healer of their soul. Amen. After explaining Christ's origins and public ministry, that is, Mark here, proceeds to show the kind of ministry Jesus brings to his people. Again, in quick, short fashion, that's how he writes, with much energy and uh, strong verbs. It is a ministry based upon teaching and healing. The remainder of the book of Mark, from here until the death of Christ, expounded in the latter chapters, shows these two activities of the Messiah. The miraculous healing, which reinforces the teaching of Christ, and is the most dramatic of the two activities in his ministry, to be sure, that is the healing. And that is true for two reasons. 
We often think of Christ and his ministry with respect to his healing, almost first, I think, often. It's proof of the historicity, of the uniqueness of him being the Son of God. The miracles that were there to attest to his Messiahship, that he's not just another prophet, but a special prophet, the great prophet. And the miracles were there as well to soften the hearts of the hardened Jews. The primary reason for miracles was to fulfill, of course, the Old Testament prophecies as a public witness of the Messiah. They were there of old, and Christ is now fulfilling them, as we saw in the opening part of the book of Mark, as we know in his life. Jesus is not just another prophet, but the special prophet, not just another priest, but the great high priest, and not just another leader among men, but the king of kings, which is seen in his life and ministry, even in the book of Mark. However, it's not for the miracles and good works that Jesus was crucified. But that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh and the promised anointed one who forgives sins and gives eternal life. That was why he was crucified. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with it. They would gladly take or leave his miracles, but it was the words of Jesus that were offensive. And so although Jesus had a twofold ministry, it is the words in particular, his teaching, that is more significant than the miracles at the end of the day. He is a great teacher, as we will see here going through these verses and tie it into the second part of the healing. Verses 21 to 22 in Capernaum, the name of this region is an unusual mark of only because he often doesn't name places. It's a fairly large township located um, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and its northwest shore, if you had a map, I'd show you, near a spring, the place of the Seven Springs, it's called. It was regularly visited by Jesus. His family eventually made their home there when they left Nazareth, as we read in Matthew 4. Ultimately, however, they rejected Jesus. They doubted, and he, they, he condemned them for that doubt. As you recall, Jesus said a prophet is without honor in his own home country and hometown. They knew of Jesus and wanted nothing to do with his teaching. They liked his miracles, (laughs) like we read here. This is great. He's healing us, but he's telling us what to do, what to believe. We can't have any of that. He taught on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the Jews, that is the Old Testament saints, and anyone who would join the Jews... We know Gentiles did join the Jewish church, although not many, and they had proselytes in abundance as by the time of the New Testament era, we find out. Although teaching is work, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, it is religious work and thus allowed on the Sabbath day, the Old Testament seventh day, uh, what is today called Saturday. It is a day, of course, not just of teaching, but of worship in general. You had the sacrifices in the temple twice on that day, morning and evening, doubling of the sacrifices. The Jews took that day seriously. His highlighting here shows that Jesus lived in that time and day and age and took the law of God as serious, more seriously, as we know, than the Jews, especially the Pharisees, who made games and played end runs around God's commandments. It was a public token, the Sabbath was, of their dedication to God. It set them apart in contrast to the pagans' dedication to their gods. They had their special day, the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day, as we know, was specifically for the Old Testament saints to imitate God at creation. He said, I rested on the seventh day, therefore you should rest. Are you greater than God? Of course not, God's saying. 
So if I'm going to do it, all the more you should do it. But the New Testament saints, of course, imitate God at creation and at Christ's resurrection. And although, although the day has changed from Saturday to Sunday, it is still one and seven. And thus, fulfillment of the fourth commandment and can only change the positive element, as only God can change the positive element. Remember the positive element in the particular laws that God gives that can change by circumstances like, I don't know, temple worship, which didn't exist before the time of Moses, and yet we know they worship God, and God was pleased with that worship, even though they didn't have a temple. But if you didn't do a temple worship after the time of Moses, God was not happy with you. You're supposed to go to the temple. Those little things can change, but it's still worship. And thus, the day of rest, although it's changed from Saturday to Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, that's why it can change, because it's the resurrection, a new creation, the spiritual creation in Christ Jesus. And so we can follow a similar pattern to the Jewish saints of old, during the time of Christ, and still learn the lesson of physical and spiritual rest, and the importance that Christ shows us by his example, that there must be a time of rest, as Christ rested himself as the Son of God on the Sabbath day, and even, as we know, participated in instruction here. For us, we have the Lord's Day today, and it's also a public token for us of our dedication to our Lord and Savior. It makes us stand out weird. What do you mean you, you're resting? This that you know we we rest on at home on Sunday. Maybe we mow the lawn or something like that, and do other things around the house because Saturday is the day we party or something like that. No, we we take care of those things on Saturday and rest both the body and especially our soul on the Lord's Day. And listen, uh, kind of like when my daughter described. Uh, this week was kind of interesting because I think of Sunday as a big Sunday school time. It's time to learn of God, be with the saints, of course, and to especially learn of God and hear his word. So that's the Sabbath of that time period, and they took it very seriously. Uh, as I think we know, you go through the Gospels here, and they try to pick nitpick at Jesus and how he fulfills the Sabbath. Because he did. He never broke God's law. He broke man-made laws and added additional legalism that the Pharisees did, but never God's law as such. But he taught on the synagogue. The synagogue, let's talk about the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So that was the Sabbath, and now we have the synagogue that was created, a place of meetings for the Jews that still exists today, although it shouldn't anymore because the Jews should accept Jesus as their Messiah and get away from all that and join a church. The synagogues were probably created before the time of Christ, we don't really know when they were there, but they were there at the time of Christ. It supplemented temple worship. It wasn't designed to replace temple worship, where you go to the priest, you bring your sacrifices, and you're there on the, on the Sabbath. They wouldn't call it the Lord's Day because they didn't believe in the Messiah yet. And the synagogue was there for formal prayer and formal teaching. I guess you could say formal teaching, maybe. It's kind of interesting because they had leadership, rulers or elders, in the synagogue, but they didn't have a formal teacher per se. They would ask people to teach, to give a word about um, the word of God. It was locally controlled. typically took 10 families to create a synagogue. And synagogues were everywhere. Everywhere where there were 10 or more families of Jews, there would be a synagogue all across the Mediterranean. Um, they would, of course, had scrolls of the Bible, and they had a person in charge of the scroll, to bring it out and take it away when they're done with it. And another person in charge of the alms for the poor. The teaching and instruction they gave through the word of God there, uh, it would be translated to Aramaic. 
because the Old Testament is in Hebrew. And believe it or not, most people at the time of Jesus didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew, actually. And as I said, it was a time of prayer and praise and of reading and learning of the Word of God. And the rulers of synagogue, as I said, would ask someone to teach. So it was an interesting practice that we we do. Uh, I guess you could say we ask the pastor to preach and always keep preaching. That's what the elders do. <laughs> we, we want to keep you here for a long time. They didn't have a pastor's position, per se, in the synagogue. It's quite interesting. Jesus took the opportunity to teach in the synagogue. We see this as a pattern in Luke the way it's described there. And Paul does the same thing. As you know, we go through the book of Acts, as I preached through it the last couple, a couple years ago. Now, Paul took that advantage as well. They're going to let me come talk? Do it. I do it today. They let me talk in the synagogue. They probably wouldn't want me talking in the synagogue and preaching through, I don't know, Isaiah 60 or something. So he took the opportunities in God's providence to preach his word. And we ought to pray the pastors are able to do that and give them more opportunities. And you can, too, to the extent that you have something to teach somebody about the Word of God. Now, it describes him, interestingly enough, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them, verse 22, as one having authority. What does that mean? It's kind of vague, having authority. But it was obvious to the New Testament era readers, to the Jews at the time, we, have a, we can make a composite picture, taking all the verses there in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, and uh, digging into what the Pharisees did and the scribes and how they taught, and contrast it with Jesus and how he taught. That would be additional work for me, so I had a guy named Hendrickson in his commentary do it for me already. <laughs> it's one of the advantages of commentaries, where a man has, I think he was a professor, right, uh, professional time, to do this all the time. I don't. I still have to do counseling and do other church stuff. Uh, but, of course, I do this a lot, too. So he was able to do this for me. So I don't take credit for this. One obvious way in which Christ spoke as one having authority. Let me make a note first. Let me back up here. It's not as though he was pretending he had authority. People talk today like they have authority. And we have a way of expressing that in America, I guess. We basically expect, I think, um, a person who speaks with authority never to admit they're wrong, for example. And he's, he's speaking very strong. He speaks without doubt. He speaks very loud or something like that. I don't think it's those forms as much as what we're going to get to, the content of Jesus. The most obvious way in which Jesus showed that he spoke and preached with authority is that he said, I say unto you. Jesus spoke of himself as one who had authority. On the Sermon on the Mount, you read several times, right? You have heard that it was said of those of old. You have heard that it was said of those of old. And this and that and that. But I say unto you, Jesus says. The scribes and the Pharisees did not talk this way. It's quite interesting. Instead, they would quote other rabbis. This is how you get the Talmud. You look at the Talmud, I've seen parts of it, and it's a, you know, a rabbi interacting with another rabbi who interacted with yet another rabbi about this Bible text. You get so lost into the commentaries of the commentaries of the commentaries of the commentaries of that verse, you lost sight of the verse. And <clears throat> this was apparently going on at this time, and Christ, however, says, I say unto you, as only the Messiah, the Son of God, can say in preaching. Christ quotes the Bible, to be sure, 
and the Pharisees and the, uh, and the scribes, of course, could, would quote the Bibles at time as well, but mostly the, the fathers. But he also quotes himself, I say unto you. He spoke the truth clearly. He spoke the truth, which would be something of authority to be sure, and he spoke the truth clearly. And the corrupt and evasive reasoning marked the sermons of many of the scribes, and you see this when Paul, excuse me, Christ pushes back against the preaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And you hear this, and you're supposed to do that, and the Pharisees would play games about swearing, for example. You could swear by the temple. The Pharisees would use that approach to oath-witnessing, oath-bearing, as a way to cross their fingers and not fulfill their oaths. So they're playing games, right, with how they instruct, and they're trying to be very clever and cute. We say clever and cute, but not quite cute. Clever and how they spoke to their audience so that they knew the loopholes, even though the audience didn't. Christ wasn't like that. He was very clear. This is how it is. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is but another way in which Christ showed that he spoke and taught with authority. He also presented matters of great significance, matters of life, matters of death, matters of eternity before his audience. It seems as though apparently the Pharisees and scribes wasted a lot of time on the minutiae of the law of God. There's a time for that, to be sure, but we're reminded of how they did that in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, little leaves, and a tithe is a tenth of a leaf. That's pretty precise, isn't it? Cut that up into ten, get a ruler out or something. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. To speak with authority is not just Christ saying, I say unto you, which is sufficient. But also, I say unto you, significant moral truths. They neglected the weightier matters of the law, and Christ reprimanded for them justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Yes, take the tithe seriously, but don't forget about the important weightier matters of the law. They did, apparently, from Jesus' own words. So that's another way in which Jesus spoke with authority. And he evidenced love in his teaching and ministry. And again, our church knows the Bible talks about love often, and when I'm talking about it, then it'll just mean you feel, you feel, I feel love coming out of that guy, whatever that means. But actually showing evidence of love and concern. And on the flip side, the Pharisees did not. Mark 12.40. In Mark 12.40, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive the greater condemnation. It's just a game to the Pharisees, the elites of the church of that day. And they devour widows' houses. They don't give them the details of that. But clearly Jesus saw it. It must have been a public sin. But Jesus called out the public sin, which is a dangerous thing to do today, apparently. Teaching today, of course, should imitate Christ, although not fully. I don't think I have to explain to you. I shouldn't say, I say unto you, as Pastor Mathis, but rather, I quote the Word of God. Always go to the Word of God, to the law and to the prophets, as Isaiah said. Don't just take my word for it. But can you find it there in the text? And every faithful pastor wants that litmus test given to him. 
pastor who doesn't want that is a pastor you don't want. They should be clear, as Christ was, and unashamedly preach the truth, and not with finagling words and subtleties designed to make them look clever or to avoid the truth of the matter. And of course, they should not shy away from important life issues, as Christ did not shy away from important life issues. Even as in the case of widows' economic issues and devouring widows' houses. And churches should expect this from their preachers. Of course, some pastors will fare better than others on the whole. Some are better at one thing than another, to be sure. But they should all emulate Christ to that extent. And we should work to that end and pray to that end. The church of God will have more such pastors, as Paul did, and the apostles, to imitate Christ in these ways of speaking. Not their own authority, to be sure. The authority of Christ. To emulate Him to that extent of preaching the truth preaching it clearly and preaching about important matters and showing the love of Christ in telling the truth, which is sometimes admonishing people in the truth, shows love, but also as best they can uh, in their lives. He's a great healer, verses 23 to 28. He was not only a great teacher, he's described here in this text a great healer, and I put the two together as we shall see why. I believe, in a few minutes. Verse 23 and following. Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. So it's already connected locally. It's the same incident, it's the same time period, excuse me, the same incident of being in the synagogue, but now it's something different within the same synagogue, maybe a little later during the day or something like that. There's a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. He recognizes, that is, the demon within him recognizes Jesus and says, leave us alone. What do we have to do with you? Jesus of Nazareth, you come to destroy us? Is our time now to be sent to everlasting hell and damnation? Oh, Holy One, he's described. Holy One of God. Unclean spirits is another name, obviously, for demon, a devil, a devil, lowercase d, uh, a fallen angel. And it makes sense why they're called unclean, because they're so morally wicked in contrast to the purity and holiness of God Almighty and, of course, of Jesus Christ in particular. They are morally repugnant creatures who hate God and man and have no redeeming value. However, the demons have knowledge. This demon, you can see the irony, I hope, unlike the Jews around Jesus see him as who he is. This isn't just another John the Baptist, his, you know, his cousin. Got these two crazy prophet cousins running around the Sea of Galilee here. But he's special and beyond that. He's the Holy One of God. James 2.19 reminds us, and James' strong rhetoric against uh, some blatant hypocrisy apparently in the churches he's writing to in the book of James. Even the demons believe, but they tremble. Their belief leads to some fruit in their life, some evidence that they can see. Even if I don't see them trembling, and I don't want to see a demon, thank you very much. But they will never repent. They're not trembling out of the fear that we have of godly fear of God and of our sins, but they're trembling because they know they will never give up their wickedness. And God will punish them. The demon describes him as the Holy One in verse 24. 
I know who you are. I recognize you, even if others do not. You are the Holy One, the pure Messiah of God. Jesus is holy in a twofold sense, personally holy as we know. Christ never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He always did good and never did evil. And all that he said and did and thought for his people as the Messiah, privately or publicly. He's the perfect Holy One of God, period. Full stop, unlike us. We're called holy to be sure. We're called saints, the holy ones in the New Testament. But it's a relative holiness compared to the world, compared to what we used to be. We are more holy. Compared to Christ, we're never at that level of holiness ever until we get to heaven. But even then, we don't have that level of holiness because God looks at the holiness of our entire life, doesn't he? Before we are saved and after we're saved, it's still you. Jesus never had it from before or after. It was always from conception on and before. Holy and perfect. Not just personally in his person, but publicly, his ministry. He was set aside in a unique way because holiness isn't just purity. It has also the idea of being set aside and being unique. Separated. He who identifies with his people as the perfect holy one in his ministry, his public job as the one who would save his people from their sins. He was set apart, as we know, in his baptism, there with John the baptizer in the earlier verses here of Mark. The Spirit comes down to testify in the form of something that looks like a dove. And God the Father spoke from heaven. More testimony and public evidence that Jesus is holy and separate and unique and purely set aside for this unique job of his for his people. And of course, his teaching and his practice and his ministry was pure and without error. The demon called him correctly, the Holy One of God. Now he's rebuked, verse 25, or it is rebuked. (laughs) But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Stop your jabbering. Leave this man. It's evidence of Christ's power in contrast to the Jews who use apparently some superstitious methods of casting out demons. You recall some of that perhaps in um, Acts and elsewhere, and they try to cast out demons, and the demon cast them out. Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. But who are you? Remember that? And he jumped them. I think it was half a dozen Jews. One guy. Beat them all bloody. So they had a method of exorcism, as it's called today in the Roman Catholic Church. It didn't work very often, apparently. I don't know if it ever worked at all. I, I doubt if it did, but I don't know. Uh, they were holy, godly men of old, of Jews, we know, believers. Jesus, as you recall, when the disciples were sent out two by two, and they come back and said, you know, we're trying to cast out these demons. Nothing's happening here. And Jesus said, some of them you can't. You've got to cast them out through fasting and prayer. Remember that? Isn't that interesting? But did Jesus fast and pray? No, because his authority was an order of magnitude. Not even an order of magnitude. It was qualitatively different. The difference between the creator and the creation. And he spoke and it was so. And he cast the demon out. The point of these kind of miracles which was also probably a healing miracle because having a demon, something's wrong, something's going to happen to the guy. We know other incidences and them describing people demon-possessed. They're beat up and they do crazy things with their body. doesn't specify per se here that something like that certainly happened. Was the evidence the power of God Almighty? 
over the things seen, the physical healing of bodies, which he did of a blind man, but also over that which you cannot see over the soul, the binding of souls, the misery of the soul, in this case of a demon. The question comes, at least it came to me, as you know, the history of which I was raised, does demon possession still exist today? <laughs> I don't think so. Christ bound the strong man, to use his language, that he was not in the Old Testament era. He was bound in the New Testament era the way he was not bound in the Old Testament era. And this, this is a transition era, of course, in which Christ comes and changes and flips things around to some extent between the Testaments. He says in Matthew 12, 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is something unique is happening here. The manifestation of the kingdom that was there of old was pale in comparison to how it is now, which is pales in comparison when Christ comes a second time, of course. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Christ comes, casts out demons by binding the strong man, Satan, and delivering people. And he will plunder his house. Jesus plunders the house. And he finished it at the cross. Also consider the New Testament descriptions of demon possession. is not what we have in a common folklore, American folklore, a crazy person and saying, I'm speaking a low down voice like this somehow. All that can be imitated, easily imitated. What can't be imitated is, um, I don't know, Luke 8.29. Or it had often seized him, the demon had seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke them. Now you're on to something. It was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Now you see that which makes demon possession unique. Other characteristics can be easily faked. You can't fake breaking chains, brothers and sisters. <laughs> That's supernatural. Something bad going on there. I've never witnessed that as a charismatic. I always heard, like I tell you before, stories of stories. Somewhere in Africa, for example. Never an eyewitness. Henriksen, interestingly enough, um, tackles this question, and he gives a quote from the late Dr. J.D. Mulder, or Mulder, who was a thorough theological, medical, and psychiatric training. In a series of articles on mental disease and demon possession, writes as following, For six years I have worked as a medical missionary among the Navajos, a tribe of Indians still deeply steeped in fear of evil spirits, witchcraft, and related subjects. While the last ten years I was daily in contact with mentally disturbed of all types, Daily conversations with these patients, however, and careful delving into their inner thoughts have made me convinced that, whereas there might well be demonic influence, the picture of possession, as found in the New Testament, was absent. Now, I want to highlight the significance of Christ healing bodies. Of course, that means he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And here, it's not just helping the body, but helping the soul of the man. The healing of the body was an outward picture of the healing of the soul, of feeding the soul and giving the soul new life and light, like healing of the eyes. And here, a new master, Jesus Christ, instead of the devil. And so the healings 
pointed to uh, the spiritual truth, the moral truth that Jesus taught, that he came to heal and save sinners from sin, especially. Not just the body, but especially the soul. And here the soul of this man, in which he was delivered by the power of God Almighty. And God still does that today. He delivers souls from the domain of the devil. That's being born again. That's regeneration. That's conversion. And it's an amazing thing to behold. As you read verses 27 to 28, and they were all amazed. The Jews there at the synagogue, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? Or teaching, for with authority he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And so we see partly of what this description of the authority that Jesus taught with one authority, not just the teaching, but also the action of healing the souls of men. The word can be translated dumbfounded as well. They were just aghast, flabbergasted, we would say, that he was like this, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I don't think you're going to have this kind of reaction today about the teaching of the church, which should emulate Jesus, of course, and the saving of souls, because we have such Christian influence. Back then, they didn't have the New Testament influence. They had the Pharisaical influence, and this kind of teaching was quite new indeed. And it's tied with authority. What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits. So in their mind, it seems to me, since they asked it one way after the other, they're tying doctrine with authority. The teaching of Jesus of verse 22 with the practical outworking of that teaching. We don't know specifically the teaching here given in verse 22, although we know in his life ministry what it is, that he is the one who saves souls and delivers them from the power of Satan and his kingdom and brings in the new kingdom because he has bound the strong man. That's a different teaching because no other prophet could ever say that, could they? And he gives evidence of that. We don't have miracles, of course, but we have evidence of our teaching as can be mapped. Take the teaching and as a follow the word of God. And then you will know it is with authority because it's based upon the word of God. Only the truthfulness of our teaching can be um, read and examined. We'll read a little more about that in 1 Corinthians 2 this afternoon, which is about teaching again from a different perspective. And so... We read, immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee because he taught new things and showed new things uh, unlike any other prophet before because he was a unique prophet. And yet we still pray that men, that as pastors raised up by God, would emulate him short of miracles in their teaching and instruction of the truth that Jesus saves souls. Praise Jesus for his ministry of teaching and healing, especially for the gospel teaching and truth that Jesus heals the souls of sinners and delivers them from the satanic control of, God, of Satan's kingdom into the new kingdom of God. Let us pray. We thank you and praise you and honor you, God Almighty, as we stand in awe of your might and power here in casting out this man with the teaching that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords in bringing in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Help us, we pray, Lord, to be encouraged thereby, to know that you're with us, and give us your healing of our souls and the teaching of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 530, 530.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.